This Sunday we come to the final psalm in our series, Alternative iTunes. And we have looked at various psalms over these past weeks. And this morning we come to one of the last six psalms. Because we find that Psalms 145 to 150 are great hymns of praise. Praise and adoration and worship have a special place in the lives of those who take the Bible seriously. It's the mark of the true Christian that often amid tears and anguish, there is still that important note of praise to the Lord. And in these six Psalms, praise and adoration reach their climax. In fact, at least one writer has called Psalm 145 the crown jewel of praise. And I feel it's fitting we do that this morning because over the past weeks I think we have an awful lot for which we can thank and praise God. If you've been around for the last three Wednesday nights, there's just three examples of how we should come this morning and praise to God as we have heard how God has heard and answered our prayers for those who have been off in summer work. There's still this Wednesday, so if you haven't been along, there's still an opportunity this week to join in with that. So this morning, we're going to have a kind of a, a praise party. Now, don't get concerned. Uh, we'll be well behaved. I'll not be asking you to do anything which might, you might term as unexpected or uncomfortable. But the theme is praise this morning. And really, I want us to continue that note of praise and adoration with which we've already begun this morning. A time of recognizing the worship of a great God. The world loves a hero. The world loves to applaud and acclaim the achievements of great men. Great men like this man. The greatest mathematician who ever lived. Who was he? Nope. Archimedes. Could have been. Or this man, the greatest poet playwright who ever lived. Okay. Shakespeare. Or this man, the greatest physicist who ever lived. I'll spoil your blushes. Isaac Newton. Or what about this man? Arguably the greatest evangelist. There he is, still alive today. Or what about this man? Oh, I hear rumblings. Tiger Woods, the greatest golfer. (laughs) Or what about this man? This man, Cassius Marcellus Clay, better known to many as Muhammad Ali, who claimed to be the greatest. I am the greatest. I float like a... I sting like a... Okay, if you're too young, ask your parents at lunchtime uh, what that's all about. But isn't it sad to reflect that just this week he's been in the UK? A pale shadow of a man, now riddled with Parkinson's disease. Great achievements are easy to recognize, especially the Lord's. I wonder, did you notice what verse 3 of Psalm 145 says? Great is the Lord, the most and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. Last week, as we looked at Psalm 9, David reminded us of some of the names of God 
Names that remind us of God as creator, sustainer, provider, preserver, master. Or a few weeks ago, as James Greenwood reminded us through Psalm 139, the all-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present God. And when David looks at God, just as people in the past looked at some of the great achievers of history, David recognizes greatness. But he recognizes greatness that lasts. In each and every one of the people we looked at briefly on the screen this morning, the greatness is only in one area. Mathematics or evangelism or golf. Once in a while we come across those who excel in more than one area. But I think it's true to say that most people are exceptions. God, on the other hand, is great in everything he does. We've already been reminded of this this morning by one hymn writer who penned the words, My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing that he cannot do. Rich Mullins wrote a similar song. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. And David reminded us last week that when you and I take time to contemplate who God really is, we too stand astounded. The psalmist says in verse 3, his greatness no one can fathom. But then David goes on to say that generation after generation will continue to remember and to tell God's mighty acts. They will continue to remember, they will continue to tell to their children and their children's children. God's mighty acts. And again, David reminded us of this last week. When we remembered and we shared together as a congregation some of those mighty acts. The God of creation. Again, as we reflected with the children before they left for junior church this morning. The God who sent a great and a mighty flood and protected believing Noah and his family. And it's easy to just take that story for granted, but put yourself in Noah's position. God had told him to do something, and to everybody else around about him, it seemed so stupid, so silly. They hadn't seen rain. But then it came. The God who gave an elderly Abraham and Sarah a child, even though it was humanly impossible for Sarah to bear a child, The God who sent ten plagues on Egypt in order to force Pharaoh to let his people go from the bondage of Egypt. The God who led his people through a Red Sea, a dry Red Sea, when they were being pursued by Pharaoh and his army. And we sang that song as children at Sunday school. How did Moses cross the Red Sea? How did he get across? And yes, it's easy for us to to think of that story and know that it worked out well, but if you'd been a one of the children of Israel on that day, and you stood there with everything in front of you that was wet and deep, on one side mountains, on the other side mountains, behind an army pursuing, no way out. How would you have felt? Maybe that's how you feel this morning, hemmed in. Your circumstances hem you in this morning, and for you there doesn't seem to be a way out. But the God who parted the Red Sea is the God that we worship this morning. The God who made the walls of Jericho fall down. The God who gave victory to Gideon with 300 men against an army of 140,000 men. 
And surely when we look at God's greatness in all of these acts of redemption, we too have to say, as Sarah laughingly said when she discovered she was pregnant, is anything, is anything too hard for the Lord? And the psalmist says in verse 3 that God is a great God. God is beyond us, beyond our theology, beyond our dogmas, beyond our scientific questioning, beyond our personal experience, beyond our understanding. And we'll miss his greatness if we spend time looking at ourselves and our own situation all the time. J.B. Phillips, in his book, Your God is Too Small, puts it like this. Big men have a little God. Little men have a big God. How big are you? How big are you this morning? Our God is so great, so strong, and so mighty. Our God is an awesome God. So first of all, God is great. And that's what we're going to sing about just now. God is great. How great is our God. Sing with me. How great is our God. God is great. But notice too that God is gracious. Verse 8. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. Slow to anger and rich in love. And a very particular example of that is that God revealed just how gracious he was in Exodus chapter 34. Remember, we have already looked at his mighty acts to the children of Israel. We've been reminded of his greatness in rescuing them from Pharaoh's taskmasters by bringing them across the Red Sea when they were hemmed in on every side and seemingly they had no escape route. Yet when Moses was up the mountain with God, the same people became impatient and decided to make their own gods For them, waiting wasn't an option. In their opinion, Moses had been away from them too long. So they decided to take matters into their own hands and made the golden calf, intending for it to take the place of God. When Moses came down from the mountain, he destroyed the calf and he ground it into powder. The people were punished with the plague and 3,000 were struck down by the sword. For Moses, this was a particularly discouraging time. Discouraging that the people fell into this particular sin just literally days after they had received the Ten Commandments. Moses wasn't even sure if he could continue anymore. He wasn't sure if God would remain with the people to bless them and to guide them. So in desperation, Moses cried out in Exodus chapter 33 and verse 18, Now show me your glory. Do you remember God's response? Do you remember how God allowed Moses a glimpse of his back? But seeing God's back was not seeing God's glory. God's glory was revealed in something else. And when God passed by Moses, he said something to him. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the God, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. 
That revelation of the compassion and mercy of God was the revelation of his glory. God's glory is that he is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. The people had just sinned. They had sinned big time. They had forgotten God and went back to the paganism of Egypt. And God shows his glory to Moses, the glory of his compassion and grace and mercy. And in showing his mercy in the midst of sin, God was displaying his greatness, his compassion and mercy are so incredibly great. Our God is so great, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing our God cannot do. Our God is an awesome God. His compassion and mercy are so incredibly great, he was willing to forgo the punishment of Sodom and Gomorrah for the sake of ten righteous people. And time after time during the wilderness travels, the people of Israel showed themselves to be a wicked and stubborn people. Think again of the golden calf, the complaining about water and manna and quails, the rebellion after the report of the spies, the jealous murmurs against Moses, and on and on we could go, yet God forgave them time and time again. He forgave wicked Nineveh, the great enemy of his people. And when the king and his people of the city repented, God forgave them. And God forgave Jonah too when he repented and followed what God had asked him to do in the first place. And the question comes this morning, what about you and I? Do we at times think we know better than God? Our ways seem more reasonable, more appropriate, more suited to what we want. And do we, like those who built the golden calf, think that it's time something happened and take matters into our own hands? The answer didn't seem to be coming. Moses was away too long for their liking. Impatience had set in. So just as Abraham did when he grew tired of waiting for Sarah to conceive, he took matters into his own hands. And to this day, we live with the consequences of that sin. Isn't it a good job that God is patient, compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love? Where would any one of us be without God's unfailing love? God's unconditional love. The psalmist here in Psalm 145 goes on to remind us in verse 13 that God is faithful to all his promises, loving towards all he has made. No exceptions, no exclusions, all, A-double-L. Sometime take that psalm in your hand and either mark or count how many alls there are in this psalm. I counted at least 15. So if you're sitting here this morning thinking, God couldn't forgive me for what I've done, wrong God couldn't forgive the thoughts that I've had wrong God couldn't clear up the mess that I've made of things in my life wrong 
Our God is so strong, so great, so strong and so mighty. Our God is an awesome God. And what God did for Israel and what God did for Nineveh, what God was willing to do for Sodom and Gomorrah, he also does for you and me. Not because we are who we are, but because he does it for you and me because of his son, Jesus Christ. He shows compassion to us and is willing to forgive. His compassion and mercy are so incredibly great. God is great. God is gracious. God of grace, amazing wonder, irresistible and free. Oh, the miracle of mercy. God is great. God is gracious. God is good. It's there for you in the verses. The alliteration was beautifully made for me. God is great. God is gracious. God is good. In verse 9. And either side of that verse, we have these words. Verse 7. Your abundant goodness. Your righteousness. Verse 8. Gracious and compassionate. Slow to anger and rich in love. Verse 9. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. And it's an amazing thought this morning that before God, the nations are as a drop in a bucket. We stand against him in rebellion. Yet the amazing and wonderful thing is that despite his incredible greatness and in comparison to our smallness and sin, he is good to all and compassionate to all he has made. He has individual concern for every single one of us. Have a look at verse 13. The Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving toward all he has made. When others disappoint us and fail us and let us down, God is faithful to all of his promises. When we live in a world that has its favorites so much so that many feel left out and rejected, God is loving to all he has made. Verse 14. The Lord upholds all those who fall down and lifts up all who are bowed down. And in a world that kicks you when you're down, God upholds all those who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. Verse 15. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at a proper time. And yes, in a world of hunger, God is near. Now, there's a theme to be developed, but not just now. How many of those who are hungry see God? How many of those who are hungry see God in us? Our responsibility for what God has given to us. We've been challenged about that on Sunday evenings. Verse 16. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. And in a world that seems dissatisfied, no matter how much it has, God has only to open his hand to meet our needs. Part of the problem is that we live in an attitude of self-centeredness. I'll have what I want in my time and in my way. And I don't care who I walk on or over to get what I want. That's the world in which we live. While all the time God reminds us, that satisfaction, real and true satisfaction, 
can only be found in him and in the plans and purposes that he has for our lives. Verse 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving toward all he has made. And in a world of injustice, how often you and I read our papers, watched our television screens, listened to our radios, chatted with those whose opinions we respect, and I reckon particularly so in recent days, with the Lockerbie disaster still being highlighted, we come away asking, is that justice? Or where is the justice in all of that? The Lord is righteous in all his ways. Or if you like, the Lord is infallible in his justice. Verse 18, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. And when help and friends and a meaningful future seem so remote, we are reminded that the Lord is near to all who call on him in truth. And then in verses 19 and 20, he fulfills the desires of those who fear him and hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. Those who fear him are those who love him. Those who love him are those who fear him. The two go together. If you, if you respect him, you love him and his ways. If you love him, you'll have respect for him and his ways. God is great. God is gracious. God is good. Sing of the Lord's goodness. Father of all wisdom, come to him and bless his name.